The preaching of God's Word then is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 16 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 16 through 18. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We can think of how throughout the New Testament there is the hope of Christ's return. This is not uh, absent in the Old Testament, though it is less clear. We read of it, we'll sing of it later, of the resurrection as well. And there are prophecies, of course, throughout the Old Testament of the glorification of Christ and of His saints. But it is with greater clarity in the New for the simple fact that Christ arose and ascended. You'll remember in the first chapter of the uh, book of the Acts of the Apostles that we find the apostles watching the risen Christ ascend into heaven, and they're understandably gazing after Him. And we could wonder what must have been in their minds. And it's uh, proper for us to think of that, though bound, of course, by God's Word, because it helps us realize that this is a historical fact. Men and women really saw the risen Christ. Men and women really saw the risen Christ ascend gloriously into heaven. They heard the angels say that as He Ascended, so shall he likewise descend, returning to you. That in like manner, as you have seen him go into heaven, so shall he come again. Well, it is this assurance which is then joined with the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. The two are linked because Christ triumphantly enters into heaven. And as Paul indicates, borrowing from the Psalms, that Christ triumphantly enthroned in heaven, then gives gifts to the church, which He gives by the administration of the Holy Spirit. And from that time forward, throughout the book of Acts, you see certainly trials, you see persecutions, and yet one thing that is most clear is a self-denying church going forth with the gospel of Christ. Why is that? It's not because they received some renewed enthusiasm in and of itself, it's because they were witnesses of the resurrected and ascended Christ. And it's because the Spirit had been given them and strengthened them unto a faithful and diligent service to His name. Well, brethren, we are not those who have experienced Pentecost, though the effects of Pentecost remain as the Spirit abides with us and Uh, brings us to understand more fully His Word. But just as the early church, so we are oftentimes overcome by various errors. It may not be that we're personally overcome, but it's that the errors of the day can somehow cool our affections and distract us from the main thing. So it's not long in the history of the New Testament church that errors arise And they distract and distort. And surprisingly, one of the foremost errors that Paul had to address was either the resurrection or the return 
and things that are related to it. So you see 1 Corinthians, and there's a whole chapter dedicated to establishing clearly the fact of both Christ's bodily resurrection and the resurrection of all in Christ. And then we have him here in our text addressing this uh, uh, worrisome concern. What's going to happen to those who have believed in Christ but have already died? And what beautiful language the Spirit gives us by his instrument here, the Apostle Paul, when he speaks of them who are asleep in Jesus. Notice verse uh, 13, them which are asleep. Verse 14, uh, them also which sleep in Jesus. And verse 15, again, them which are asleep. Well, he's not speaking of what you and I experience on a daily uh, occasion of resting our bodies, but notice he makes explicit in verse 16 that he's speaking of those that are asleep uh, with reference to those who are dead in Christ. Not spiritually dead. Not dead in sins and trespasses as men uh, since Adam are, but rather those whose bodies have been uh, uh, severed from their souls and they have perished in this world, and yet they are believers in Christ. What's going to come of them? And there's much comfort here. But Paul doesn't leave it at that because he also shows that it's not just that those who have died in Christ that have hope, but notice those that shall be alive when Christ returns have hope as well. Verse 17, when he says, We which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now brethren, this is a worthy consideration that Believers, dead and alive, shall be reunited, thus the we. But the focus is not simply the fact of brethren being together. But notice the emphasis in verse 17 when it says that we will meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And so it's not denying the great encouragement of knowing that you know, a brother in the faith who died will rise again and we'll get to see them. That's part of what is bound up here in the great encouragement. It's not denying that there is encouragement from realizing that every Christian, everyone from the Old Testament and through the last day who has trusted in the Messiah shall rise again and we'll see Elijah and Moses. We'll see Abraham and others and wonder at that with great delight. But that is secondary to the primary. The primary is that all of us together will be with the Lord. Notice it's not that just Paul says that so shall I, singular, or so shall you, singular, ever be with the Lord. That's true, and it's bound up in what he says with we, but it is rather the fact that we, all of his people, together will be with Christ. These things are bound Together, of course, there is the individual uh, uh, concern of our souls. What about me? Does Christ love me? And Paul, of course, is the one who says, Christ loved me and gave himself for me. And so there is much by way of personal encouragement. But also there is, as is emphasized here, the corporate encouragement and perspective that all of Christ's beloved people, all for whom he gave himself, all for whom he prayed in John 17, shall, as he prayed, see him and be with him where he is. Well, that day is yet to come. 
And you'll notice that this provides tremendous encouragement, such that Paul says, wherefore comfort or exhort, encourage one another with these words. Sometimes it's worthy of wondering where our perspective is. It's easy to criticize the first disciples as they gazed up into heaven. And sometimes you hear people say, you know, that these were, you know, looking up and sort of twiddling their thumbs, wondering, now what are we going to do? But I wonder if it's not the fact that their looking unto Christ is a better posture than our current day where we're often consumed with the world. Because they who looked to Christ longingly as He departed received Christ's Word and His blessing by His Spirit and then got to work to serve to the glory of Christ. And so certainly, you know, apostles, evangelists, prophets, extraordinary officers of the church, but then you have pastors and elders and deacons, ordinary officers of the church, have, as it were, the light shining primarily upon their work in the Acts of the Apostles. But then you see every sort of Christian, from men and women to children even, who are being used of the Lord to advance His cause. Why is that? It's because the Lord whom they loved was their Lord. They knew that He had been raised from the dead, had ascended to heaven, is seated, and will come again. There is much by way of encouraging us and strengthening us. Notice the chapter itself just by way of context, that it comes as it begins with an exhortation. Verse 1, "...as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more." Now, what's the general connection? There is this fact that Christ's coming is a call for us to live in light of that day. Notice right before chapter 4, verse 1, there is this uh, benediction pronounced, and it includes in verse 13, to the end, He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, in light of these things, and in addition to that truth and blessing, therefore walk worthy of the Lord. Well, one such reason for that, not the only reason, but one uh, that is emphasized here, is because that one of whom we're to walk worthy is going to come again. And not only, as Revelation tells us, shall every eye see Him, but the great consolation of the church, we will ever be with Him. In other words, there's a time coming of the greatest intimacy with the Lord that any believer in this world has, shall ever know. And so we think of the seraphic Samuel Rutherford in his letters and how he speaks of Christ and the intimacy. And we think of McShane and others. We think of Augustine in the early church or Paul or John who rested his head upon the bosom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look at these and we wonder at their intimacy with the Lord. And yet there is a degree of intimacy that yet awaits us that is better than what they knew in this world when in glory we shall behold Him and ever be with Him. Now, of course, to the world, the carnality and the wickedness and worldliness that plagues the world, this is not the main or the best thing. They want everything that they have in this life amped up 
volume up so that they can have all of their carnal pleasures increased. But the believer who has been brought away from those things as their everlasting delight have now turned to the Lord. And this is the comfort. This is what makes a a, a lady willing to suffer beatings for Christ. Because she knows that though this man, this group of men, beat me for my adherence to Christ, Christ will come again. And whatever is done to my outward person right now will not detract from the glorious day that is to come. It's what comforts uh, the Christian when a brother or sister in the Lord is on uh, the last moment of life and wheezing and inhaling, exhaling, and soon enough no more to be done. And they die. What's the comfort? Well, not just that they go to a generically better place, though there's truth for the Christian that the soul now goes into heaven Yet there's the reality of the body, which somehow the Christian world seems to forget today. And that body is a testimony that there's something not yet right. And that grieves the Christian. There's a burden. Why? Just as creation groans for what? Not for our souls to be disembodied, but rather, as Romans tells us, for the revelation of the sons of God in that in glory. And so it is that this is the longing for every Christian. It's the longing for creation itself, which is still under the effect of the fall. Well, to help us and to encourage us unto such a walk as is to the pleasing of God, let us consider then this comfort that comes when we realize that Christ is to come. Firstly, by considering the nature of Christ's return And then secondly, the blessing of Christ's return. The nature and the blessing. Well, consider then the nature. What is uh, Christ's return? What is going to happen? What is it about? Well, several things from this text alone can be clearly asserted. And the first is this. Christ will return personally. This is a simple point, as all of these points are, and yet the simplicity is where the great comfort comes. And so there is a comfort, of course, when a parent uh, uh, loses their spouse and yet sees something of the loved spouse who's now buried in the child. And so, you know, a husband who buries his wife might say to his daughter, I see much of your mom in you. And there's a sweetness to that. And there's some degree of consolation. But this is not what Christ's return is. Christ's return is really His personal return. It is that He who lived in this world, who suffered in this world, who died on the cross, was buried, rose again, and ascended, He Himself is going to come. Notice verse 16, For the Lord Himself shall descend. He's not just sending an ambassador. Right? There's a sense in which we can say, as Paul does to the Ephesians, Ye heard Christ. Well, they never heard Him personally, but they did hear Him by the ministry of the Word. They heard Him instrumentally. You hear Christ, not personally, as if Christ bodily, physically is here, but you hear Him instrumentally by His Word. Every time His Word is read, that's the voice of Christ. Every time His Word is faithfully proclaimed, that's Christ. And yet it's not Christ personally as it is to come when He will return. In other words, there's a way of, as the Scriptures talk about, John the Baptist 
is Elijah come again. Well, that's not Elijah reincarnated. It's not that. And it's not that John the Baptist is personally Elijah. But it is that as Elijah was a forerunner of uh, um, uh, Elias, or Elijah is the forerunner of um, the prophet that follows him, John the Baptist then uh, precedes Jesus Christ. And so what's going on there is Christ is saying, like Elijah preceded, so John the Baptist precedes and is the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's not how Christ is personally going to return. It's that He Himself, not an ambassador, not some virtual uh, one appointed, but He Himself is going to come. What this means for you, Christian, is that the Christ whom you know by faith, the Christ whom you do know in His uh, gracious visits by His Spirit, one day will personally come for you. Now secondly, notice that Christ will return not only personally, but bodily. Now notice in verse 14, uh, we read Paul say that Jesus died and rose again. It's this Jesus who is the Lord, and it's this Lord who died and rose again, who Himself shall descend from heaven. And as it says then in verse 17, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Not with the generic spirit or idea, but with the one who died and rose again. This is important, particularly in our day and age, when the heresies of the past are ever resurfacing and riddling various forms of Christianity. Christ did not arise in the Spirit when He rose from the dead. Christ arose bodily. His literal body, which was tormented, which was crucified, and which drew its last breath, and was buried for the space of three days, is the same body which gloriously was raised up. And so it is, you remember, that Thomas, who doubted, and understandably, uh, as far as doubts are considered, he says, except my finger goes into his hand, except my hand goes into his side. You see, I've seen what was done to his physical body. Don't take my time and waste my affections with the stories of nonsense. I'm not going to believe unless I can touch him, unless I can hold him. And yet, what is it that happens? Christ appears. And he says, of course, on the second time to Thomas, Thomas, here's my hand, touch it. Here's my side. Put your hand in it. See the scars that I have. This is the real body that you once knew. And now you know again. John uh, the Apostle is able to write in 1 John that the things which were seen and handled are now proclaimed to you. Jesus Christ come in the flesh. Now, what's the point? We can count ourselves on occasion as underprivileged because we didn't get to see the ministry of Christ in this world. And there's a sense in which, of course, we are without that privilege. We didn't get to see. That's why Jesus says to Thomas, no less, that blessed are those who believe and yet have not seen. Right? That is, as it were, a higher privilege or higher blessing because we without the uh, confirmed and physical realities before us are brought to believe. And yet, brethren, we ought to remember this. The present time that now is, is not the end. 
you and I are going to see the real bodily Christ. The Son of God incarnate, now glorified, is the one who's going to return. And it's with Him, the glorified Son of God in the flesh, that we will ever be with. It's an astounding thought to consider this. At the right hand of God the Father in glory is a human being. Consider that. At the right hand, making intercession for us right now, is one who is truly, fully, really human. Now that's not all He is. He is the incarnate Son of God. He is the eternal Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. And yet He is incarnate still in heaven. And it's His incarnate uh, person who will come to us at the last day. So He'll return personally. He'll return bodily. None of us to be, as it were, with complaint, for we will be able to be with Him and derive the comfort of so great an intimacy. But notice thirdly, that Christ will return publicly. This is important in our own Protestant setting today. That there's no such thing in the Bible as a secret return of Christ. There's not a secret rapture that takes place then to be followed by seven years or three and a half years or more years, and then a public return of Christ. All is bound up in one and the same event. Notice it's right here, quite plain. In verse 16, the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Now, if you're going to be secret, here's one thing you don't do. You don't shout. Well, look more. It's not just with a shout with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump that is the trumpet of God. Everything is openly declaring, pay attention, this day is come. And what happens? It's then that the dead in Christ shall rise. So this errant teaching that plagues much Protestantism today, that says, you know, there's going to be the secret rapture, and then people are going to, you know, go up from the earth, from their graves, and those who are alive are going to go up from uh, earth and and be taken away, raptured uh, unto the Lord, and then there's going to be a period of tribulation. There's a lot of problems with that, but one such problem is right before us. It's all one and the same event, and it's a public event. It's something that everyone sees, everyone witnesses, everyone realizes. Christ speaks of the coming of the Son of Man as lightning from one end of heaven to the other end of heaven, public. Here it's trumpet blaring. It's a shout going forth. The archangel calling the earth to take note of the returning King. You can see the same idea in Revelation and chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him. And they also which pierced Him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. His return is bound up at the same moment. Notice the simplicity of it. Christ will return, verse 16. He'll descend from heaven. So He's coming down. And at that time, the shout happens, the archangel's voice, the trumpet blares, and the dead in Christ rise. 
And then those who are alive are transformed, as we'll see, and meet Him as well. This isn't to be whisked away, but it's something that everyone in the ancient Near East would have understood. It's something that we don't understand culturally, but it's something that they would have understood. A triumphant king returning would have his loyal citizens meet him for his being set up as king in his place. And so they would go forth. And so you think of David. What does he do? He comes to Jerusalem. The people come out. And then they go with him into the city. And the same is happening here. The Lord is bringing up His people with Him. The entourage of everyone for whom He gave His life is now gathered with Him, which is a wondrous privilege that is already foretold that we shall reign with Christ. That Christ shall cause Satan to be brought underneath our feet. And so we're taking a pardon His glory, not worthily in ourselves as if we qualified for it, but rather by His grace. It's a public return unto triumph. Thus the shout and the trumpet, the raising of the dead, this glorious people that gather with Him. And so this public spectacle of triumph is the great encouragement of the Lord's people. Notice, moreover, that this is spoken of as in the next chapter at verse Two, as the day of the Lord. And notice it's linked to the destruction that comes upon them. You see, there's not an interval of the secret day and then this public day. It's all bound up as one event. And so we can put to rest all of this worry you know, about secret raptures and everything else and actually focus on the Scripture's point that day that comes does not initiate a second chance wherein we can now, well, there's such a population gone, now we got to get serious. No, when this day comes, it's over. There's not a second chance. There's not three and a half years. There's not seven years that's going to pass of tribulation. When this day comes, history as we know it is finished. And the dead in Christ and those who are alive in Christ are now with Christ And there's the grand separation. And those who said, peace and safety, chapter 5, verse 3, shall be taken with sudden destruction that comes upon them. See, it's this day, the last day that is described. When Christ returns publicly, the dead in Christ rise, those alive meet Him, the day is now here, and history has now reached its end. Well, This leads us then to the blessing of Christ's return. When we see these historical truths, and what a thought, brethren, these things are going to be seen and experienced by everyone here. That doesn't matter if we're going to be alive at that day or we've been dead for hundreds of years. It doesn't matter if we're a believer now or never a believer. Everyone here shall see with their own eyes these very truths. Some, by God's grace, will be those who experience the blessings of which we consider. Others will be spectators watching but not participating in these blessings. So as we think of the blessing of Christ's return, let's remember as Paul shows us in the subsequent chapter that there is no such blessing of Christ's return to the unbeliever. Not one. There's not any relief. There's no comfort. There's no consolation. There's no relief. There's no encouragement. There's no such blessing 
to the unbeliever. Notice how Paul mentions this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and at verse 7. He says, To you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. Notice what follows. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He shall come to be glorified in His saints. And so on. Notice this. When Christ returns, as we're seeing, for the believer, whether dead or living, tremendous blessing as we'll see. But to the unbeliever, there's nothing but torment awaiting. Now this is where we, in our day, need to uh, consider well what that means for the unbeliever. Because that will help motivate us with a clear warning to them. This actually is not the only motivation to testify to them, but it is a real motivation. Paul says that we know the terror of the Lord, therefore persuade we men. When we realize what is to come, that leads us then to be faithful to testify. Now ministers have a higher calling in that because they're appointed as watchmen. And so if they see danger coming to a city as an ancient watchman and they don't blow the trumpet and warn the people, the blood is upon them. But every believer is aware of this And whether one's an official in a nation or a citizen in a nation, if they know that there's danger approaching, they have a responsibility to warn others. Now, others may not listen. Others may not care. Others may think it's fabricated. But our calling is to testify of this truth. This is, of course, what gains the mockery and ridicule of passers-by at street preaching or door-to-door work or private uh, sharing of the Gospel when we do that and say things like, you know, are you ready to meet the Lord? Do you realize that whether you die or live, Christ is going to call you into account? And there's ridicule, certainly with liberty to their uh, ability to do so, or there's dismissive uh, treatment, But whatever the case, the believer sees this. And we ought to come under it. Every single human being will come to face this reality. But we shouldn't leave it just generic. Every one of us will see this reality. And if it is not that we're a believer, then it means we will not partake in any such blessing. And oh, the shame that is by Christ described when He separates the sheep from the goats And he says to those that are not his people, depart from me, ye accursed. And he says, because when I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me a drink. When I was this and that, you didn't serve me. What's the point? They didn't live in light of the truth. But the believer is one who is told, you know, welcome. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And they say, When did we do this? To the degree that you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Their life was in accordance to this truth. And again, in context, this comes in 
as a comfort to strengthen us to live faithful lives. That's how the whole epistle really is ordered, but particularly this chapter, that we would live and walk as we ought to walk and to please God, and to do so abounding more and more. And one way this happens is by considering the truth and the fact of Christ returning, and then considering the blessing. Notice the blessing to those who died in Christ. That means, of course, those who are now dead, who when they were alive, trusted Christ. And our catechism is biblically informed when it speaks of those who rest in their graves, their bodies still being united to Christ. And we see the evidence of that in this uh, portion when it speaks of those who are asleep, that sleep in Jesus, and that these will be brought with Him. Notice that language. They're sleeping in Jesus. They're dead, and yet they're still united. Certainly their souls are alive and well, but their bodies are wasting away, are already wasted, and yet their uh, bodies are still united to Christ, resting until that glorious day. Well, what's the blessing to them? They who precede those who are still alive are going to proceed at the resurrection. This is what Paul means uh, when he says that they will uh, be brought with him for verse 16, the trump of God, etc., and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So those who are dead will first come out. And what a thought to think of. When you go and visit a cemetery, some are more fully, you know, full of uh, uh, those who were confirmed believers in their life, others perhaps few. It's good to think one day this ground shall be ripped open and the bodies of believers will be appearing in glory and arising, not just on their feet, but ascending to Christ who's coming to this world. It's a good thing to remind ourselves. Sometimes in different places we can go and we can see you know, well-known Christians who have died or we have lesser-known Christians in our own lives and we can go and visit their grave. And it's certainly wrong of us. It'd be sinful of us to try and pray to them. That's you know, ridiculous. But it's right for us to consider that one who's buried is literally going to rise again. And from that very spot, the whole earth will be resoundingly praising God. What a thought to think that those who have trusted Christ, however defamed, however mistreated, however maligned in this world, shall rise up in glory. That's a great blessing for the believer. But there's a blessing to those who are still alive. And Paul mentions that then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Remember, Revelation 6, He's descending in clouds and we're meeting Him with the clou- in the clouds. And so there's a great privilege that those who are alive will be gloriously changed. And this is something to remember. Paul doesn't mention it here, but there's a transformation of uh, all that we are on that day. And so you can see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When Paul is dealing with more fully um, the resurrection, he mentions in verse 50 and following, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 and following, Now this I pray or say, brethren, 
that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery, something that needs to be revealed. We shall not all sleep, we will not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Do you see again, just as an aside, that there's not a secret rapture followed by this other thing, because he's speaking about the last day when the trumpet shall sound. And then when that trumpet sounds, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and those alive shall be changed. And then it is in verse 54, so when this corruptible uh, shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. This is that victory that every single Christian looks forward to. May I ask you, in passing, have you thought of that victory today? Perhaps you saw you know, the text go out in the email in sort of preparing us somewhat for a midweek gathering. But prior to that, has this been on your mind? Has it been on your mind in the past week? Has it been on your mind in the past month? How much has it been on your mind in the past year? Because what we'll see is, this is that to which our hearts are being shaped and for which they're longing. We're longing for this day. And if it's not so clear in our own present experience, it's needful that we be somewhat reproved and corrected and reordered to this point. Our hope is not that you know the church is just going to get bigger. There are many hopes still. The turning of the Jews and the overthrow of Antichrist and all of that. But the hope of the Christian is this hope before us now. That one day we shall see Him. Notice the great blessing to all His people is not just their transformation. It's not just that they who are you know, mortal shall put on immortality, that those whose bodies were corrupted are now putting on incorruption. It's not just that glorious transformation. How can we imagine what that is fully? But it's this, that we, verse 17, shall ever be with the Lord. That's the blessing. That's the longed-for hope. That's the great desire. And that's the great cause for us being willing to deny anything and everything in service to the Lord. This is why we're willing to bear the cross. And you'll notice the parallel. That's why Christ was willing to bear the cross. Hebrews tells us, He endured the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before Him. Now some people think, well, you know, Do we really need motives? Do we need encouragements? Absolutely we do, because God has full and given them to us. We aren't some, you know, stoic who doesn't have feeling. The Lord opens to us the treasures of this grand encouragement, which preeminently is knowing that one day we will be with the Lord, never to depart from Him, nor He from us. But ever-present, bodily, personally, gloriously, With Christ, we can't fully conceive of these things. How many millions 
of people and how will that all work out? We don't need to know. We just need to know that it will. And we trust the God who made all that is out of nothing. And if God can make all things out of nothing, it stands to reason that He can fulfill all His holy and perfect will. And so yes, we have questions. Yes, there are things to consider. But let's not lose the focus that this is the glorious hope of the believer. Blessing for every believer, young or old, dead for thousands of years, alive at the last day. You start to see some of the parables uh, coming to fruition. Those who served Him for many years in seasons of persecution, in trials and so on, and those who are just converted. Think of this for a moment. The thief on the cross who repented as it were at the last moment. We take you know, no presumption from that. You search the Scriptures and you find few, if any, beyond that thief who on their deathbed repented. But that thief who died took his last breath after having who knows for how long. A couple hours? A few minutes? We don't know fully. But he who trusted in Christ heard Christ say, This day you will be with me in paradise. His whole life up to that point was one of rebellion to God. It's even recorded that both thieves were ridiculing Christ. And yet finally, by God's grace, this thief is brought to repent. That thief, who for a handful of moments was believing upon Christ, will be gloriously changed on the last day to worship God. Just as John the Baptist, who from the womb of his mother did leap at the name of Christ, and did serve Him self-denyingly, enduring hardship, and enduring scoffing, and mockery, and misrepresentation, all these things, and finally beheaded for nothing less than testifying of the truth of God's Word. Both of them shall be gloriously changed. Yes, there are degrees of reward, but we ought not to miss this fundamental fact. Both will be gloriously changed, And both will ever be with the Lord. Which is true as well of each believer that is now and ever shall be. Brethren, here is something for us to emphasize again. We're to learn and remember where our great comfort is found. Here it is. We shall ever be with the Lord. Sometimes we start to think about degrees of reward and we think of that as discouraging. And instead, the Scriptures use it as an encouragement to be more diligent. It's actually a prodding and an encouragement saying, oh, to be with the Lord. You've heard the story, if only from this pulpit, of George Whitfield being asked if he thought that he would see John Wesley in heaven. And his answer initially was no. And of course, this was in the midst of a controversy between the two. And the audience that was present thinking that they understood, oh, they're saying that Wesley won't be in heaven, he continued to say that he thought that Wesley would be far closer to the Lord than he himself. Now, whatever the truth of that is, there is indeed something there to consider. But we ought to see most clearly the great consolation that however used of the Lord, however graciously enlivened by the Lord, whatever sacrifices we were uh, made to give, and however faithfully we walked with the Lord, and however weakly we serve the Lord, however uh, faulty was our service to the Lord, 
every last believer will be with the Lord and shall be gloriously changed to the glory of His name. Why? Well, it's not because of their godly living. It's because Christ gave Himself for them. It's because we see it on the cross, as is explained to us, you know, the, the chastisement of our peace was upon Him. By His stripes we are healed. We see that it, pro- it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He has put Him to shame. For what reason? But that we would be saved. We hear it in Christ's prayer, God, my Father, this is my desire, that they would be with me where I am. Here's the hope that is the common foundation of every believer. Because of Christ, we will ever be with Him. Who's coming? Christ is coming. It's not that we're coming to Christ. Remember that. It's that Christ is coming to us. Just as He sought us out in accordance to God's decree, by His Spirit transforming us, so He will seek us out personally on that last day to gather us unto Himself that we should ever be with Him. Well, brethren, here is something upon which we ought to meditate much. Every day that we wake up, one thing that we should consider is this. I've awakened to this day, the daylight shining. There's a day coming when such light will shine that never an eye has ever been able to behold when Christ returns in glory. And I, as a believer, shall be changed to enjoy it. We have to think of that. My days are, yes, coming to an end if I die in this life. But regardless of that, the whole earth is coming to an end. Every eye shall behold in Revelation chapter 6. And so it is that our eyes shall behold Him. We ought to meditate because here's one such encouragement unto holiness. It's also one such encouragement unto endurance. When trials come, heartache comes, hardship follows, all of these things. If in this life only we have trusted Christ, Paul says, we are of all men most to be pitied. But we haven't. Yes, we've trusted Christ for the length of this life. And yes, we've trusted Christ for the length of our burial. But we've trusted Christ as well through to the last day and for all eternity. That we shall behold Him. And then it is that we're able to start measuring however hard it is here, however difficult it is here as I serve the Lord, What is this compared to the glory that is to come when I shall see Him? Who is it that thinks, you know, someone at that day is going to say, I should have kept more earthly pleasure to myself. You know, no one's going to think that. No Christian is going to say, I gave up too much so that I could enjoy this day. Every unbeliever is going to say, nothing I ever enjoyed compares to the misery I'm now going to face. And every believer is going to say, nothing I suffered can compare to the glory that is now mine. One reason we don't have that governing us is because it is allowed to sort of float around in the air of our mind instead of being brought face to face with the reality of our consciousness saying, this day will come. My ears will hear the voice and the trumpet. My eyes shall see the heavens scroll back and Christ descend. I will see the dead rise up. 
I will hear the men scream to the mountains to fall upon them. These things will happen. And as that is true, by God's grace, then it is that we're able to order our life in light of that last day. Well, brethren, take this up and consider again the Christ upon whom you've trusted and whom you know by faith and not by sight will one day no longer be known by faith, but will only be known by sight. And that will never change. But for all everlasting, everlasting, immeasurable duration shall it be that we will ever be with the Lord. Would you stand with me for prayer?